Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. All right. Well, good morning, Candeo. Uh, this is exciting to be here. As Cody said, it's the first time I've actually, this morning was the first time I physically set foot on this campus. And uh, it kind of feels like a rite of passage, like as a family, as we're here, I was like, it's, it's kind of like that first time you go home from college, right, to your parents. And uh, last night, you know, mom and dad, like Cody, Jake, they take us out to meals, they pay for it, right? And in exchange, we laugh at their lame jokes. And, uh, and then here I am back from college and I'm at the family gathering and, and now I'm up here telling you how to live your lives, right? It's like, oh, we really are family. Uh, no, but uh, seriously, I, I just want to start by saying uh, how much we love you at Anthem Church. It's really hard to express how much we love and we appreciate you, Candeo Church. And, and it, it is because you, you have no idea how much of an encouragement, how stabilizing, uh, just how much your prayers, knowing that you're in prayer for us. Because as Cody said, church planting has its ups and its downs. It's a roller coaster. And, and what happens is in the midst of it, you need a body of believers larger than yourself, more broader than yourself, who's kind of stabilizing you before the Lord in prayer. And, and also I'll say the amount of, of time and energy that you've allotted to your elders, your pastors, to be able to come down to Columbia, to be with us. Sometimes it's on hours notice when something comes up to be on the phone or to actually drive down there and, and to be in our homes and to pray with us, for their wives to be with them, to encourage our wives. I just want to communicate to you how much one of the things that's been such an encouragement to me is to hear, because, you know, when someone's out of town, they really say what they really think, and they love you. They absolutely love you. They absolutely love this city, this valley, they, and I have been so encouraged by seeing their heart. It, it's been incredibly edifying for me. And so my, my goal, really macro goal this morning in continuing this series and the Sermon on the Mount is, is really to encourage you as you have encouraged us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's my prayer this morning. Well, the, we are continuing in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and this morning we come to this passage that talks about the law. And when you hear the law, you know, it, it kind of brings up this tension within us. Because on one hand, you're like, is the law good? Is it bad? Is it relevant today? Is it outdated? Is it, is it a grace? Is, is it a curse? Uh, how should I think about the law? And specifically, as we're in the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is talking about how to be kingdom people and how to experience that kingdom life and experience that grace and experience that reality of who God is and his reign in your life. What does the law have to do with that? It, it, I think to start us out and by way, because I know like it's obligatory to like introduce my family to you, uh, I'll tell a story about my family. I don't really like talking about myself. I love talking about my family. Uh, so a few years ago, we actually just moved to Columbia uh, right at the beginning of 2020, and uh, which God was like, surprise, welcome to a new place. Uh, and we moved across the country from California. 
And one of the things about moving from California to Missouri is that you take equity from a house sale and then you buy what feels like a mansion from what seemed like it was just this tiny little apartment or condo. And then all of a sudden now you have all this space. And so we have three kids. There we have an eight-year-old, a five-year-old, and a three-year-old. That's my wife, Lauren. My greatest accomplishment today is somehow conning her into marrying me. My second greatest accomplishment is making those cute children. Uh, and so we... Uh, we, we bought a house, and this house was amazing because it had, you know, we live in a tiny house in California. Everything's expensive. You have very little land. And all of a sudden, our three kids have this huge yard, and there's this fence around it, and we, we have an in-ground pool. It's kind of ridiculous, actually. And, uh, and, and so we have this in-ground pool, and we, you know, and there's like snakes that would come to the yard, like fun snakes, right? And so there's tons of fun. And, and at least I thought so. My kids were terrified of them. Uh, but we're having all this fun. I'm like, there's, and there, you know, we have all these toys in the backyard. And it's like, this is amazing, right? And, uh, and so we were surprised when a few days into spring of 2020, our, our kids, we go outside and, and they're by the gate to the, uh, on the fence at the edge of the yard. And they're trying to like wedge open the padlock on the gate. Like they're literally like taking sticks and trying to use my like crowbars. They're nailing it with rocks, like slamming on it. And they're trying to break off this padlock so they can open up the door and they can get out of the yard, right? And they want to escape. And there's like this forest back there. And they're like, oh, we want to go out there. We want to go. I'm like, there's so much stuff in the yard. Run and play and make merry, right? Like go. And they're like, no, we want to be out there. I was like, oh, okay. Next day I come out. They've taken all those amazing toys and they've actually like stacked them on top of one another. And my oldest is on the top of them while like the five-year-old's trying to like hold it steady and she's trying to climb over the fence to get out of the yard. Now, I won't tell you how the story ends. It just got better. But here's the reason why I tell you that. Because it captures something about what we feel uh, when it comes to the law. The law of God, which is this. The question is, is the law there in order? Because sometimes it seems like the law is there because it's keeping us from life, from real, real life, from real, where life really happens, where there's freedom. Like my kids, I want to get beyond this fence because beyond there is really where the fun is, really where life is. Is the law really that? Is the law there actually just to keep us from life? Or is the law there so it would actually kind of give us the parameters and the boundaries for where life can actually happen and we can live life to the fullest? In order to answer that, in order to understand that, we need to look at what Jesus says here today. And what Jesus is going to tell us is that first, he's going to answer the question, how should we think about the law? How should we think about the law? Is it relevant to today? Is it just kind of this Old Testament thing and we're done with it? Or, and then the second part is, how do we use the law? If it's relevant, how, how do we apply it to our lives in today's world? So we'll jump in uh, right after. I'm going to actually pray, though, before we jump in. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word. Lord, we ask that this morning we would see the beauty of your law. We would see the beauty of Christ and his relation to the law and his fulfilling of the law. And Lord, we would discover true freedom in Christ. And so, Lord, I, I thank you for this body. Lord, I thank you for just the witness that they've had to Anthem Church, the encouragement they've been. And so, Lord, this morning, would you encourage them through your word? Spirit, would you encourage them? Would you 
just bring this word to bear on their, their souls and how to apply it in their individual lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how should we think about the law? Well, this is what Jesus says in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, first, uh, Jesus does something here. He kind of uses shorthand, or you can think of like a zip file, right? One of those files you get, and then you open it, and it's like, blah, all this stuff comes out, right, that's packed in there. When he uses this phrase, the Old Testament and the prophets, what he's doing there is he's kind of packing in a lot of all of the Old Testament. But uh, when we think about the law, honestly, I could, we could do five or six sermons just unpacking what is the law, right? There's a lot to unpack. A helpful distinction to understand what Jesus is referring to here with the law specifically is that the law often is divided into kind of three different parts. There were these uh, parts of the law that had to do with what you might call like the civil law, right? Like the, the rules as far as like what you have to do with your property, what we think of like laws of the land and, and how to engage with the government and how to engage with foreigners who were coming in and things like, you know, put, it said, put a parapet around the edge of your house, the roof of your house. Why? So someone doesn't fall off and, and break an arm or whatnot, right? So you have these civil kind of things, how to live as a, uh, as a people, in society. And then you also have these uh, ceremonial aspects of the law. And the ceremonial aspects of the law had to do with like the temple, uh, the ceremonial cleansings. Uh, when can you go into uh, the temple? When are you clean? When are you unclean? Uh, atonement for sin? What kind of sacrifices to use for those different kinds of atonement and different kinds of sin? And then there was this third part. And the third part was the moral aspect of the law. And the moral aspect of law would have to do with things, ethical things, like uh, what, as far as human sexuality, laws about uh, marriage, uh, and laws about murder, laws about stealing. Um, and obviously, the, the most well-known would be the Ten Commandments. And so we have the moral, we have the civil, and we have the ceremonial. And we'll come back to those throughout, but it's a helpful distinction to kind of categorize, as Jesus talks about fulfilling the law, because Jesus is going to make a few statements that are striking. They're striking. But they're very, very helpful in understanding the law and the world that we live in. The first is Jesus says that the law is tied to creation. That the law is tied to creation. Look at verse 18. He then says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, notice what Jesus says there. He says that the law is going to last as long as creation. As long as this world, everything you can see, it's going to last as long as creation. And he's referring to the Old Testament law. He says none of it will pass away. In fact, when he says an iota, that's like the Greek, it's almost, it looks like a little comma. And it's the Greek word for a Hebrew letter of the alphabet called the yod. And it was essentially, that's probably what he's referring to here. And it's like a little, just this little comma that you can, or an apostrophe that you could easily look over. And he says, that won't even pass away. And he says, also, a dot will not pass away from the law. You know, our letter A in English, and if you have a letter A and that little stick that can make it like a D, right? That little stick would be like the dot that Jesus is referring to. In other words, he's saying, even down to the letter, nothing is going to be lost. Not one little tiny bit of that law is going to perish. And this is Jesus' way of emphasizing that fact. Now, the question is, what is the significance of that? And what is Jesus saying? 
Jesus is, is really alluding to a reality that has existed since the beginning of the dawn of time. See, before time began, God existed eternally as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God was in this eternal delight. It says in 1 John that God is love. Not love is God, but God is love. So God defines love, and that's defined by the Father's love for the Son, and the Son's love for the Spirit, and the Spirit's love for the Father. And within the triune Godhead, there's this love and this delight and this passion of God for who He is within God. So from before time began, eternity past, God has existed in that kind of a delighting community. And then at one point, for whatever reason, as um, Jonathan Edwards, who was an old theologian, he said, it's no fault of a fountain that it overflows. And what he was saying was that God is just overflowing with this delight within himself, this love that he has for himself. And then at some point, he overflowed with that, and he created the cosmos. Think of the cosmos and God creating like an artist, taking a blank, creating a blank canvas, and then and then describing and articulating his love and his passion and his delight. And the creation that we live in is God going public with his glory and creating a masterpiece, as, as one theologian called it, a theater of glory. And so this is why Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. That's not a small thing. That's not just some kind of sentimental idea. It's saying that creation comes from the very glorious God of the universe. And then in the midst of that theater of glory, it says God created and it was good, it was good, it was good. And then kind of at the apex of it, then he created us in his image. And what does that mean? It means we are created with a unique capacity to relate to him, to worship him, specifically to join in that delight, to join in that love, to know him, and then take part. That's why God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, exercise dominion. He's saying, take all the raw materials, go into the yard, go into the garden. I've created a reality and go into it and delight and join in the delight that I've known from eternity past and relate to me, and take it, and cultivate it for further, and further, and further glory. And when he created that world, the reason why he called it good was because weaved into the fabric of the creation that we live in is his moral purity, his moral goodness. See, the reason why Jesus connects the law to creation, and he says the law will never pass away until creation passes away, is because what he's saying is that the law is, it, it shows us something of the creator, the creator and who he is. It's weaved right into it. In other words, there are ethical realities in the world that are absolutely inescapable. So it's not arbitrary when God, it's not like, you know, Israel got together in the desert and they're out of, out of Egypt and God goes, oh my goodness, we have a nation, we got to teach them some rules, they're a mess. So it's kind of like the kindergarten class and you're like, okay, rule number one, respect one another, right? Rule number two, raise your hand, right? Rule number one, don't worship me. Uh, another rule, don't murder each other, right? It's not like he made arbitrary rules. What he's saying is he's, he's making clear what is already a reality in the world we live in. It's inescapable. 
it can be no more denied than you can deny the reality of gravity. And we see that this is the reason why if you murder someone to take one law, you will break down psychologically. And so will society and on and on and on. That's why people show up 20 years after getting away with murder, even if they're never caught, just weeping on the doorsteps of a police station saying, please, I'm guilty. Will you punish me? Because they can't take anymore what it does to their soul. It means if you seethe with hatred for people and you kill them in your heart every day and you hold on to that bitterness, it means that one day your body will keep the score and eventually it will begin to break down and you'll feel it in your body. It means if you cheat on your spouse, emotionally, it will catch up with you. If you steal, society will break down, relationships will break down. There are realities in the universe that we live in that are inescapable. And Jesus says, I cannot deny these realities because we live in a world that is filled with God's glory and that includes the ethical realities of the world we live in. The law is just making them explicit. So you would know. This is why Jesus says what he does in verse 19. He says, therefore, therefore. So because this is true, Therefore, what I'm going to say next follows from it. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Why does Jesus say that? He's saying, listen, if there are certain realities in the world, it is not loving to just tell people, like, live however you want to live. Because what he's saying is the opposite of living in a life where it's, it's in tune with the moral reality of who I am, my goodness. If you don't live in alignment with that, then you are going to create a literal hell on earth. And that is not loving. And so Jesus is saying to relax the law, to, to get rid of the law, to just push it aside and say, live however you want, you do you, and that you will flourish is a lie. And he's saying, in other words, that's like living, saying, you know what, the fence, when we get over it, actually out there is life, but in here is not life. And what he's saying is if you live that way, then you'll never know the reality of what it means to be within the parameters of my goodness and to know me and to have that, and to have that peace and to have that joy. And so it's simple. In many ways, when you read this, it's simple, actually. It's like, well, don't break the law, then it'll be heaven on earth, right? But it's clearly not that way in our lives. And so obviously what comes up as soon as we start talking about this is, I have a problem. Which is, if that's the reality and then I've broken that law, which we've all broken the law. Have you ever lied? You've broken the law. You ever hated someone? Just wanted to kill them in your heart? You've broken the law. And it's easy to think, well, that's a, it's just a small thing. But the reality is, what happens is it draws a line and separates us. It's a big problem because it separates us from a big God. See, the reason why Jesus takes the law so seriously is because he's saying this is a world that was created by a holy God and I want you to know that holy God, the entirety of the Old Testament, the entirety of the New Testament, the entirety of the Bible is a story about how is it that God can be restored to relationship to his creatures when he is a holy God and he is morally pure and beautiful 
and glorious and true. And then we've stepped away from that. We've muddied that. How in the world could we be in his presence? How in the world could we be in relationship with him? How in the world could we know him? And the whole Bible is about how God is solving that problem. See, it wouldn't be a solution in the world we live in with the tragedy that it is, that is the result of both individual sin going to a systemic level and corrupting and polluting, and then that also feeding back down to an individual level, just this cycle of what the Bible calls death, of pollution, corruption, destruction. It would not be good news if what God said was, you know what, actually, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to save you to my glory. I'm going to save you to know that reality, to get rid of that death. But actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to lower the bar of my glory, and I'm going to let death in. In other words, that fence, and what Jesus is saying here, is either you're in the yard, you're in the garden, or you're out trying to find life outside of it. And outside of the reality of who I am. So if we've broken the law, we not, only, we not only mess up our lives, but we can't be in God's holy presence because God isn't going to say, well, open up, flood open the doors and let heaven be invaded by hell. God keeps those separate so that there's a chance that we would know him in the fullness of his glory, in the fullness of his goodness, and have life in that reality. Look at verse 20. This is where... Jesus takes, he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying, if you want to be holy, if you want to be in, if you want to be righteous, you must keep the law. And that presents, obviously, the problem. We sin, we break the law, but if we break the law, we can't get in. And that brings up another aspect of the law Jesus wants to make sure we get. The first one is that the law is connected to creation. But the second one is that the law is also connected to Jesus. The law is also connected to Jesus. Look at verse 17 again. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Don't you have to reread that when you first read your Bible? Do you remember like the first time you read that and you're reading? Like I, I expect it when I read it to, to, I assume Jesus will say, listen, I, I've come to do away with that whole archaic old system. Right? All those rules and regular, I've just come to do away with that. That's no more. I'm just grace and love. And so those are just gone. But he doesn't. Why? Because again, Jesus knows he can't get rid of the law and he can't deny the law any more than he can deny creation and any more than he can deny the, the laws of the world we live in, gravity, thermodynamics. That moral reality is already baked into the world we live in. So in other words, it's not a question of if we have to fulfill the law. Listen, it is not a question of if we have to fulfill the law. We do. We all, I do, you do, we have to fulfill the law. Not a question of if, the question is how. And will you have to fulfill it? Or who will fulfill the law? 
Jesus, let me just again be very clear. He's very clear. The law is good. It's holy. It's true. It actually gives a picture, reveals the holiness and the purity of who God is. And it's hardwired into the world we live in. And he can no more deny the law and that reality than he can deny God. But you can imagine Jesus also knows he's coming into a world and he knows he can't deny the law, but he also can't deny our sin. They're both there. He can't deny the law must be kept and he cannot deny that we've broken the law. I don't know if this has already come up in the series, but the Sermon on the Mount is very purposefully paralleled to Moses on Mount Sinai. It's kind of like a second Sinai with Jesus. And so it's interesting that right away he comes to this thing about the law. And it immediately makes me think about what happened when Moses had the same revelation regarding the law when he first gave it on Mount Sinai. So in Exodus 32, it says this. Catch this. I don't know if you've ever caught it when you read your Bible. But it says, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. He goes down, sees the golden calf that whole story. And then now I, I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Do you see that dash? That dash is like this hard break in the Hebrew. That's the best way we can capture it in English. In other words, Moses seems to be mid-thought, and he comes to this place, he goes, if you, can just, if you can just overlook their sin, if you can just forgive it, if you can just kind of pretend it didn't happen, God, if you can just sweep it under the rug, if you can just do that, if there's some way. And then Moses comes to this, re, this realization that that's not possible with a holy God. That again, that would just open it up so hell can just invade heaven. That has to be dealt with. And so Moses immediately, he has this kind of like ability to see like actually what's going to happen if we brought death is someone has to stand in their place. The law demands death because sin brings death. And so Moses says, God, will you take me? And God responds and he says, Moses, you're not you're not righteous enough. You're the religious leader, the prophet of Israel, and you are not righteous enough. The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not enough. And that is why Jesus ascends another mountain 2,000 years later. And he comes into a world that has been wrecked by sin and this tension of knowing, I want to know your glory. I want to know life. But I find that I've broken this law. I'm separated from you. How can I have life with you again, God? And Jesus comes into the world saying, I am the one who will fulfill the law. And that law, the ceremonial aspects of the law, the aspects of the sacrifices that would cleanse you, that would wash you with blood, that would make your, wash away your sins so you'd be white and no matter your sin. Listen, I know that often we think God forgives the like small sins 
And each one of us have things that are kind of like, I don't know, in the proverbial closet of our life, under the floorboards. We've buried it deep down. No one knows. It's in our search history. It's in our past. It's something no one we hope ever finds out. And we often live our lives thinking that thing actually God is still holding against me, just ready to come out and whack me when the time comes. And the reason why scripture again and again and again says it takes blood, it takes something gruesome, is because we know when the most heinous sin comes, one, we, we demand blood when we're sinned against. And God says, you have it in my son. And also when we're sinned against and we're just, or we sin against others and we just know the depths of it, he says, listen, yes, it is dark. Yes, it is gruesome. Yes, it is painful. And that is why I'm showing it is death. That's why it's not just some old idea of killing an animal. He's saying, do you see the reality of the effect of your sin in the world? And I want you to be cleansed of that. And so what Jesus, when he says, look to me by faith, it's helpful actually to take how Jesus fulfilled that ceremonial aspect of the law and make it tangible. Because what Jesus was saying was in the Old Testament, what they would do is they would actually go to the temple, and sorry if this is somewhat graphic, but our sin is graphic. You would go to the animal and you would place your hand on the head of the animal and you would look into its eyes while you would identify the sin that you've committed. And you would look into the eyes of that animal as you understood that this animal now is going to take your sin. And with the other hand, you would slit its throat. And you would watch the blood drain from its eyes as you realize that that is the effect of your sin, yet this animal now has taken away that sin as far as the east is from the west. And you would look to it and understand that animal is taking away my sin. And what Jesus is saying is it's even better with me because not only can you look to me on the cross and as the blood drains from my body, as the life drains from my eyes and you look at me and you see, yes, that's my sin. That's, that's what's been done to me. That's what I've done to others. It is that serious. Thank you, God, you've given something that actually is that deep, that's that wide, that's that high, that takes it seriously. And he says, but not only do I take away your sin, but also because I am the son of God, I've come to give you righteousness. So before we look at the second, what do we do with the law? My question just is for you. Have you seen a righteousness that is far and above the scribes and the Pharisees? There is nothing we can do to prove, to pretend, to perform, to prove ourselves righteous. That is righteous enough. But God has sent his perfect son to take the place of that lamb. To become the once and for all sin. The Son of God entered into the world, the very God who created the world, and the very Son who was with him there, who he delighted in at creation. When we fell, he didn't just shame us and scoff at us, but it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus ran to the world, the very heart of God, saying, I will redeem you with my love, I will restore what was lost, and I want you to know life with me. Do you know that life? So what do we do with the law now? You say, yeah, I've, I've come to Christ. I've placed my faith in Christ. And now what do I do with the law? So quickly with the second point, how do we use the law? If Jesus' death has covered our sin, what do we do with it now? 
And the answer is God gave us the law to guide us into life with him. God gave us the law to guide us into life with him. And, and it's helpful to go back to that, that illustration with my kids in the yard and the fence. Because there are three historically theologians, the reformers, whatever you want to use, they, they talked about three uses of the law. Okay, and those three uses are that the law is given to restrain sin. It's a restraint. It's given to reveal our need. It shows our guilt and it leads us to Christ. And then the third and what they call the principal use of the law is to instruct us to learn God's will. So I'll just quickly, using the fence analogy, it restrains our sin. You know, my, my kids want to get past, there's a fence around our yard for a reason. Because there's a road right beyond it, there's, a, there's this huge, these woods on the back. And I was from California, so I was like, I don't know, maybe Missouri has lions. I don't know what's in the woods, but it's got something, and it'll eat you, right? But there, there's something, like, there, there are all these realities around, and the fence is there to keep them from just wandering off into the road. If my three-year-old just went in the backyard, it was like, bye, have fun, here's a sandwich, see you tomorrow, right? Like, she would just wander off into the road. But that fence keeps her within that place. The law, in the same way, is given as a restraint. There are realities that are healthy to have as laws in our life, to have boundaries in our life, have protections, things that we don't put on our phones, certain apps. There are certain things that are helpful protections in our marriages to make sure we protect the, the fidelity of the marriage and protect our chastity outside of marriage. There are things that we uh, do in terms of our society to protect ourselves. Restraints to sin are good. It's good. It keeps us from going off into crazy land, right? And so the other thing then is the law is, reveals our need. So one of the things is there's something in us, the Bible says, about sin that just keeps wanting to go beyond into, we're tempted, in other words. It, it, what the Bible calls death at work in us. And so what happens is if we were just to follow our, just follow our emotions, just follow our desires, we would constantly live our lives just going and grabbing at things and getting things and, 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 and doing things with our lives that would eventually destroy us. And what happens is if we're willing to look at the law, the way Paul talks about it is we would look at the law and then we would see, oh my goodness, I can't go there, but I want to go there. Why do I want to go there? I need, I have this like nature, this thing that's wrong with my heart. And he says, there is grace here. There is a new reality and it's in Jesus Christ. So the law reveals again and again our need. The law is not meant to look at and make us feel self-righteous. To go, got that, check that box, look at me, right? We're meant to look at the law and actually realize, man, I can't. I can't be the better man who does it, but you know what? I know a better man, and he's accomplished the law, and he gives me grace, and so my life now is not fueled by trying to prove myself constantly, but by his grace and his love for me. Lastly, then, the law is given for life. The law is given for life. In other words, the law is given not so we would just stare at the fence and be like, oh, everyone out there is having so much fun, right? But instead, what it's there is so that we would turn. You know, repentance is not, it's, it's, there's a fifth century theologian named John of Climactus, and he said something like this, that repentance is the denial of the despair and of despair and the embrace of hope in life. Repentance is a good thing. It's turning from something that actually is going to breed death and turning to life, turning to the yard, turning to everything that's there and the life that's there and actually delighting and living life and learning to enjoy the life that God has given. It's like in the garden again and again and again. Don't eat that tree. The whole garden, go and delight. And so in our marriages, it's not you can't be with someone else. It's you have this garden to cultivate 
to experience love and intimacy and commitment. It's not you can't take other people's stuff with your possessions. You can't steal. It's that you get to steward what God has given you, discovering what, how God has gifted you and how he's desiring you to use it in the world for his glory. He's got a great purpose for your life. And if we always stare at the fence, just angry that we can't get beyond it, then what happens is we never turn and experience life. And so what we see again and again in the New Testament, Paul will talk about the law and he'll say, you are meant to be compelled by the spirit of Christ, the law of Christ, which is the spirit of God come to dwell within you. And now the spirit leads you. You become a slave of Christ because now the very God who created the world, who is good, true, and beautiful, he now comes to take up residence in you, not just to be near you like in the temple, but to be within you and dwell within you as we read earlier during the worship. So you can abide in him and know joy and life and true freedom. And that's why the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to begin addressing problems with hate, lust, envy, pride. Why? Because it's saying, Jesus is saying, these are not pursuing those things. That's, that's slavery. It's not freedom. And I want you to have freedom to know the reality of my kingdom, to live in light of it, not for this religion thing, just to be this idea and things you do on Sunday, but to be this all-encompassing joy that you have in life. And so the question is, what aspects of the law are you tempted to see as just keeping you from life? And then to ask God, God, reveal to me, what, what life do you want me to have? You fulfilled the law so that I don't have to, so I'll be compelled by your grace so I would know life with you. And ponder that. Jesus wants us to begin enjoying now what we'll know fully forever. And one day in the new heavens and new earth, we'll run, we'll play, we'll laugh, we'll create, we'll dance, we'll feast, not under the law, but with Christ. Within the reality, the moral reality of his goodness where we won't even think about the fence. We'll just think about the big garden, the big yard that we get to delight in forever. And that is the freedom. That is the life that we ultimately seek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you have created us. You are a God of glory. You are a God who is passionate for yourself. You're a God of love. You're a God of delight. You're a God who then creates and invites us into that life. And so, Lord, yes, you clearly demarcate. You clearly make the boundaries where if we step outside of them, it's death and it will only lead to destruction. That we're not made for that reality, but we're made for the realities that are defined in your law. And so, Lord, would you help us to embrace it as good news? Lord, would you help us to embrace it as a grace that reveals how to live, but then we would also see the grace upon that grace, which is your grace in Jesus Christ, so that we might fulfill, walk in light of the fulfillment of Christ of the law and walk in freedom, filled by your spirit, filled by your love, enjoying you and delighting in who you are with one another until one day when Christ comes back and takes us home and we enjoy you in that state forever. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. 
To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.